We want to thank you for listening to audio from the Hill Church. We exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry or donate online, please visit us at thehillsd.org. Good morning again, church. If you have a Bible, you can open and turn to Mark's gospel. We'll be in the 13th chapter this morning, finishing out chapter 13 of Mark's gospel. Let me say to you before we begin, um, as you are getting weary of this season, so are we, so am I. I am right now preaching to a camera with about five, six people looking at me. It's difficult, it's hard, we're over it. But I want you to know that, as you saw this week, we've sent out an email to you kind of laying out some potential plans for us as we regather. We will be moving in that direction in the next few weeks. But I want you to know what's behind my decision-making. God has given us, I feel, you've heard me say this before, He's given us the gospel and He's given us people. And our, our call as the church is to take the gospel that He's given us and give it to the people that He's entrusted to us. So I make my decision, we make our decision as leadership here based upon um, the totality of our body, including you, what's best for our body at large to regather, and based upon the witness of our community, um, who we will be in this neighborhood. I, I know some of you um, think we should have been meeting a while back. Some of you want us to be meeting now. Some of you are worried that we are going to move too fast. Here's what I want to say to you. Um, you need to recognize that your understanding of this moment is your understanding of this moment. You might have biblical principles that inform that, but there's no biblical imperative to tell us what to do here. So you need to love your neighbor well and love one another well and trust us as a church as we move forward and trust that King Jesus is sovereign. He's on his throne. And we'll move forward uh, in, the, in the near future and be able to sing together, to gather together, and be the people again of God together in this building. So I love you and look, look, look forward to that day. Mark chapter 13 is where we'll be this morning. Now, there, there may be nothing more exciting and at the same time miserable than a family vacation to Disney World. And yes, I said Disney World. Disneyland is cool. But if I'm honest, it has nothing on the world of Mickey in Florida. It's much bigger, the lines are much longer, and the Florida heat is way more miserable. So our, our last trip as a family, when we, when we went, Nathan, my middle boy, was around three years old, the perfect age for Disney World. He was old enough. Uh, to be mesmerized by everything, and yet he was young enough to need someone to carry him around the park most of the time. And now, uh, getting past the shocking reality that after paying over a hundred dollars a person to get in, you leave that booth, and they require you to pay twenty more dollars to park. We entered Disney World. Um, I find it. Unbelievable that 500 bucks doesn't even get you a parking spot, but we'll leave that where it is. But after we got into the park, after we rode the, the tram and we experienced all the initial excitement, we got in line after line and we waited and we waited in the blistering Florida heat. And you know what kids do. 
They do what you want to do, but you can't do in line. They fall asleep. I was left, you've probably had this experience, left carrying a hot, sweaty, sticky three-year-old for an hour in each line. Now, as soon as we get to the front of the line, he'd wake up, he'd enjoy the ride, take a few pictures for mom, and then we're off to the next line. And then it would happen over again. He would start grabbing my leg, then make his way into my arms, and then you would literally watch his eyes drift away. There's something, I'm convinced, there's something about Disney World and Florida heat which prevents children from staying awake. Now this morning, we, we finish our study of Mark chapter 13. And this is Jesus' important teaching section known as the Olivet Discourse. We looked at the first half of this section last week. Within Jesus deals with Uh, issues related to both the near and far future. And due to this, this section of Scripture elicits much interest and passion by many as it relates to the end times. And it should. And this is a a good thing. However, I want to make sure that our interest and passion concerning end time realities do not cause us to miss uh, Jesus' message here. Uh, For... We find no setting of dates. We find no mapping out of charts. Instead, what we find is our Savior admonishing His people, His disciples, me and you, to stay awake. In verse 33, 34, 35, 37 this morning. So as Jesus brings this section of the Olivet Discourse to a close, He calls us to look out, be on guard, and to stay awake as the people of God. So... I want to give you another straightforward statement this morning, really reflective of our statement last week, and then dive into our passage, and here it is. In light of Christ's second coming, our calling is to stay awake and live with a sense of urgency as the people of God. So in light of Christ's second coming, we have a calling And our calling is to stay awake, Jesus tells us. And we're to live with a sense of urgency as the people of God. Last week we we addressed verses 1 through 23. And this morning we're going to pick up in verse 24. And we're going to read, we're going to go to the end of the chapter. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 24 of chapter 13. Jesus says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then there will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as as its branch, branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that hour, that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. But be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. 
For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now last week we, we noted the interpretive challenges in this chapter as it relates to Jesus' instruction regarding the near and distant future, both the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70 and the close of the age. And we mentioned, I mentioned the necessity of bringing humility into our interpretation when we come to this chapter in the Bible. Because deciphering when Jesus is speaking about which, the destruction in Jerusalem and the end of the age, is a real challenge. And this morning, this is no different, especially concerning verses 27, 24 through 27. Now, I want to be clear this morning. I want you to hear this. Good, faithful scholars understand these verses, verses 24 to 27, as describing two entirely different things. While many, maybe we could say most, understand it to be referring to the second coming of Jesus, I would assume that's probably the way you read it. There are many good Faithful scholars who interpret it as referring to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Every event in verses 24 through 27 they see as such. And the reason for this is primarily driven by verse 30. I want you to put your eyes on it and look at it. Look over at verse 30. Jesus, announcing to the disciples, he uses his common, verily or truly emphasis. He says, truly I say to you emphatically... This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So, if verses 24 through 27 are describing the second coming, then this verse becomes a bit tricky. In fact, many critical scholars use this very section, this very, these very verses, to try and disprove the reliability of Jesus' teaching. They say, see, hear, it's clear Jesus got it wrong. For the disciples, this generation, they died. And Jesus, we still await Jesus' second return, his return. Now, of course, this dilemma is solved if verses 24 through 27 are describing events pertaining to the destruction of Jerusalem. As I said, which drives the interpretation. But, as you'll probably see, this interpretation has its difficulties as well. So, which one is it? Now, to answer that question, we're going to go on a bit of an interpretive journey this morning. However, I, I'm doing it because I think it's important, and I want to ask you to keep your Bibles open, pay attention, jot notes, and follow with me. But before we do, before we dive in, I, I want to bring back to you this morning my analogy of last week of a mountain peak. At a distance, a range of mountains often seem like one single peak, because depth and perception are hard to determine at a distance. That's important. Depth and perception are hard to determine at a distance. But the closer you get to the mountain, the more you understand its depth. What looked like one peak, often you realize is many peaks. And as I said, this analogy informs my interpretation of this entire chapter. So here's what I want to do this morning. We're going to walk through the rest of this chapter chapter and we're going to draw out 
three important truths about Jesus we must not miss. Okay, and the first one is this, in verses 24 through 27. Jesus, our great hope. That's what I want to see. Jesus, our great hope. Now, in light of the persecutions and sufferings mentioned last week, as we ended with, here we find the great hope that the time of distress and tribulation, as we addressed last week, will not have the final word. God's full and final act of redemption will arrive, will arrive when Christ returns in all His power and glory to gather His people. Jesus' words here in verses 24 through 25 are steeped in prophetic Old Testament imagery. We must not miss that. He says, look at it, but in those days, verse 24, after the, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. In those days is a phrase found often in the Old Testament speaking of end time realities. And here it's said to follow the tribulation, referring to the destruction of the temple we looked at last week. After that time, in those days, cosmic Apocalyptic signs are said to occur. Cosmic upheaval and universal cataclysmic judgment will signal that the end has come. But what end is the real question, right? The end of Jerusalem or the Jewish age or the end of history? And those who argue for the end of Jerusalem emphasize the apocalyptic language here reflective in Old Testament judgment passages. What's being described here, they argue, is a metaphorical, I want you to hear this, a metaphorical description of the son of, of the coming of the Son of Man in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Evidence for such language as it relates to God's judgment can be found in passages all over the Old Testament. I'll give you a, fruit, a few. Isaiah 13, 9 through 10, speaking of the Pending judgment of Babylon in the past is ascribed this way. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark and at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. So this past judgment upon the nation of Babylon was clearly described by way of metaphorical language. Or again, Ezekiel 32, 7, where we read, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with the cloud and the moon shall not give its light. So this type of metaphorical language is, is common amongst the prophets depicting judgment in the Old Testament. Now, while noting the nature of this language is important, its presence alone does not answer the question, right? What event does this language literally refer to? Metaphorical or not is the question. Is it referring to the destruction of Jerusalem or the second coming of Christ? That's the real question here. And Really, one's interpretation of verses 26 through 27 will determine this. Look at it. And then they will see the, the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now again, those arguing these verses describe the, the destruction of Jerusalem point out how the, the word coming here in verse 26 it can also be translated as going as well. And in fact, they see this as an allusion 
So Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 through 14, which speaks not of a coming to earth from heaven, but a coming or going to God in heaven to receive vindication and authority. I'm going to read it in just a minute. But so what they say is this coming, they refers to an event where the authority and dominion of Jesus is vindicated over the Jewish establishment, which has rejected him. Let me read it to you. Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 through 14. We read this. I saw in the night visions and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed so they understand the language of verses 24 through 27 to be reflective of daniel's describing the son of man coming to the ancient of days receiving his dominion and exaltation the lord jesus And then lastly, of course, this interpretation makes dealing with verse 30 rather easy. That these things that must take place before the disciples die is simply the destruction of Jerusalem, which clearly does happen. So I'm presenting this to you so that you'll see there's some good arguments here. But I'm not convinced. And I see this as a reference to the second coming of Christ. And here's why. Now first, nowhere... In the New Testament is the vindication and exaltation of Jesus tied to the destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, the importance and emphasis placed upon the destruction of Jerusalem required in this interpretation is nowhere else found in the Bible. In fact, it seems, this interpretation I think, seems to go against what the New Testament teaches elsewhere. For the exaltation and vindication of Jesus is always assigned where? To his death and most assuredly his resurrection, not the destruction of Jerusalem. The apostles preaching everywhere, especially in the book in Acts chapter 2, makes this undeniable. Peter speaks of Jesus as the one who died, who rose again and who was exalted to the right hand of the Father in heaven. But more importantly, the language of Verses 26 through 27 cannot be interpreted in any way radically different than other passages using similar language clearly referring to the second coming and the final judgment. Let me give you a few. Matthew 13, 41, we read this. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Very clear language of the second coming and the final judgment. Matthew 25, 31, 31 to 34. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, same language, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from the other as a shepherd separates sheep from the goat. And He will place the sheep on the right and the goats on the left, clearly referring to His judgment. So for those reasons and many more, the second coming seems to be the focus of these verses. Now listen to me. With that said, we must remember that everything Jesus says in this chapter comes as a response 
to the questions the disciples asked back in verses 3 and 4 regarding the destruction of the temple. So, Pastor Jimmy, why would Jesus jump to the second coming here? Because the destruction of the temple, I think, serves as a foreshadowing of this great day. Think back to the mountain range imagery again. This is how prophecy works in the Old Testament. We find the Messiah prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. He is said to be a great king. He's said to be the Son of God and the one who will come in the clouds with great power and glory. He's said to come as a suffering servant. And from the perspective of the Old Testament prophets, this all seemed like one concurrent event. The coming of the Lord on that day, it was one, it seemed like one mountain peak. However, as we start to see these prophecies fulfilled, we understand they have much more depth, much more peaks. He comes, but first in the incarnation, as a baby in Bethlehem. And he comes as a suffering servant. He comes as a king. However, his kingdom is not at all once consummated. He comes to to live, to suffer, to die, to rise again, and to ascend into heaven. But now we await His second coming. The great culmination as is being described here. So, from the Old Testament perspective of the prophets, and even Mark the evangelist as he writes here, the great coming of the Lord is simply perceived as a two-dimensional reality which lacks real depth of perception. It seems like one mountain peak, when in actuality it's multiple peaks, all part of God's divine act of history. As I said, this includes Jesus' incarnation and all it entails, His ministry, His death, His resurrection, which brings about the kingdom. Partially, or we could say a glimpse of it, a a now, but then a not yet. But yes, it also includes God's divine judgment on Jerusalem in 70 AD. But most importantly, it includes the second coming of the Son of Man on the clouds, bringing history to its final consummation. So, do you see, is what I'm asking you, that Jesus answers the disciples' question regarding the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming of the Lord. He affirms the destruction of Jerusalem as one peak in this mountain rage beginning with Christ's incarnation. So what am I saying? In one sense, it is a coming of the Lord, but one that serves as a foreshadowing of the coming of the Lord as is being described here. So are you, are you with me? I, I hope you are. I hope I haven't lost you in the details. If I have, I apologize. But listen, please, if I did, come back to me here. We cannot, you cannot, I cannot afford to miss the riches of verse 27. Look at it. And then. Oh, the, the richness and the glory In those two words. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds. From the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. The coming of Christ. 
the great coming of the Lord, which brings about His judgment. For us as believers, the elect, those who truly know Him, it will usher in the final day of our salvation. I know if yesterday I was, while I was preparing this very message and reflecting upon this very text, I heard something unusual, unusual outside, a, a loud sound. And then on the hill behind the church, um, I saw this huge shadow move, move by. So it caused me to jump up quickly and run outside to see the Thunderbird flyover in honor of our healthcare workers. I don't know if you saw it. The sights and sounds were both amazing and really somewhat frightening until I knew exactly what they were. And even then it was so loud, ear-piercing to my ear. I watched the formation fly over and it kind of went out east and then about, I don't know, 45 seconds to a minute later it circled back and it flew back headed north. As I walked back into my office reading and studying this text, I couldn't help but sit and reflect for a few minutes and try to contemplate that day, the great coming of our King in all His power and glory. He will come. And with Him will come the fulfillment of all righteousness, all justice. Every wrong will be made right. Everything will be exposed and laid bare for what is true. Everything, sin and death snatched from us, will be restored on that day. And as frightening as that day will be, for us who know Him, He will gather us as His own. And this is our great hope. No believer anywhere will be forgotten and missed out on that great day. All will be gathered and share in our great King's final day. And what will be that gathering entail? Revelation 7, 9 and 10 tells us, After this I looked, John said, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What an awesome promise that awaits us as God's people. This is our great hope. And there's a question here. Is this what you are waiting for? What are you waiting for? What are you placing your hope in? As we sang, there is only one worthy. There is only one worthy of your great hope. The question is, are you waiting on Him? Is He the one you understand to be worthy of all things? So we see first that Jesus... That He's our 
great hope. But we also see Jesus as our firm foundation in verses 28 through 31. Jesus now transitions in verses 28 to 31 with something of a parable providing the disciples with a a lesson regarding the coming destruction of Jerusalem. He does so by returning to the very important image of a fig tree he used back in chapter 11 to denounce the temple worship in Jerusalem. For he says, verse 28, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Springtime, fig trees begin to experience the swelling of their branches and the sprouting of leaves, indicating summer is near. Verse 29, Jesus says, So also, or in, in a similar manner, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Then he says this, our statement, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This question, the question that really jumps off the page at us is, who is this generation? If all these things includes the second coming, then we have to do something with this phrase, this generation. In other words, it has to mean something other than the disciples' generation. For they died and Jesus still hasn't returned yet. And many argue that, many good scholars argue that this generation refers to the generation of the Jews or the generation at the end of the age or the end of the world. Both are possible explanations, but I think rather hollow by my humble opinion. The most straightforward usage of this phrase is one's contemporary generation as used four other times in Mark's Gospel. So personally, I find it a stretch to try and make this word mean anything other than the disciples' contemporary generation. So how do we resolve this? Well, what if these things refers to something other than the second coming? Namely, the destruction of Jerusalem. And if we go back to the disciples' original questions in response to Jesus' prediction of the temple destruction in verse 4, we read, look at it, verses 3 and 4, verses 4, and verse 4. Tell us when will these things be, and when will be the sign all these things are about to be accomplished. The these things in verse 29 and the all these things in verse 30 seem to be referring back to the these things in verse 4 and the all these things in verse 4 concerning the destruction of the temple. Now, maybe you're thinking, but Pastor Jimmy, how about the end of verse 29? Where it says, clearly you know that he is near at the very gates. Well, the gender of this verb has to be determined by the context. It can be translated he, she, or it is. In other words, it can be a masculine, feminine, or, juder, uh, or, or neuter a translation. The gender has to be determined by the referent, which I understand to be the destruction of the temple, as we see back in verses 3 and 4, as I just argued. And if you're reading a King James, a New King James, or an NIV translation, that is exactly how it's translated. They all read, it is near at the very gates. Now, this interpretation, I believe, allows for the immediate application of verse 30 
to land on the disciples, the very ones asking the question, which only seems appropriate to me. But more importantly, it allows verse 31 to maintain its proper theological punch. Jesus places his personal guarantee on the truthfulness of what he, of what he just said in verse 31 with an amazing statement. Look at it. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus actually says that his words are more enduring than creation itself. He's making here a bold declaration regarding his identity as the Son of God. We know passages like this all over the Bible. This is a clear reframe everywhere. But Isaiah 40, chapter 8, we read, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. So Jesus is saying here that his words possess equal authority, power, and permanence as the Old Testament. By my words, of course he means chapter 13, but of course he means much more. All his words will endure. Jesus' words are more certain than the continued existence of heaven and earth. Now, just consider this from the perspective of the disciples. Jesus has just promised that everything the disciples understood regarding the permanence and stability of their identity as the people of God is about to pass away. The temple and Jewish worship as they know it will be gone. And in fact, even heaven and earth may pass away. But Jesus says, me in my words will not. What is he saying here? He's saying that he is the disciples' firm foundation that they must stake their very lives on, as must we. The reality is, we need to hear that in this season. The earth as we know it could give way. The mountains could fall into the sea. The heavens can melt away. The United States government can crumble and fall tomorrow. Our society can bust loose at the middle. Pestilence could take over and disease our entire nation. And it won't affect one thing about God and His sovereign plan. His word endures forever. Christ's word will not fail us. The question is for all of us. Then what is our foundation? What are we building our identity on as the people of God? Where do your roots go down into of your life? This season, if nothing else, has caused us to recognize that so many things that we have used to forge our identity have been stripped from us. Many of you have lost jobs, relationships with Friends have been strained, if not non-existent, or at least to a Zoom screen. The difficulty of what it means to do life as we have always done it has been set aside. 
But nothing of Christ and His kingdom has been shaken in one bit. He's our firm foundation. I want you to write this down and consider. What do you tend to build your life upon which will not last? What foundation do you tend to build your life on upon which when the waves and the storms come, it will drift away and fall away like sand? We must build our lives on Christ and Christ alone for He and He alone will not pass away, He said. The earth gives way, the mountains fall into the sea, the the heavens may melt away, but the Word of the Lord will stand. He is our firm foundation. Thirdly, though, there's a call in this text. Jesus, I want to look at Jesus, our clear calling in verses 32 to 37. Jesus, I think, now turns his attention well beyond the temple destruction back to his second coming in verses 32 to 37 to issue us a clear call. Jesus concludes his teaching in the Olivet Discourse very importantly with words of warning to the disciples, calling them to stay awake and watch for his coming. But before this, Jesus makes a rather peculiar statement regarding his ignorance, if I can say, concerning the timing of it. Verse 32, look at it. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. This phrase, not even the Son, should cause us to pause. Now, as Bible-believing Christians, we affirm what the Bible teaches, the full divinity of Jesus, God the Son. And as God the Son, He possesses all the attributes of deity, including that of omniscience or all-knowing. So what do we do with a statement of ignorance? Really, that Jesus concedes concerning the day and the hour of His own second coming. And here's where we need to think carefully concerning the incarnation. When God became man in the person of Jesus, this was nothing like some Marvel movie. In other words, Jesus was not God in a bod. No, He was fully God, possessing a divine nature. And yet, He was fully man, possessing a fully human nature. He was, as our confessions tell us, very God and very man. And when God the Son chose to take upon humanity in the Incarnation, He in no way surrendered His deity. But He did, however, choose to freely set aside His glory for a time by relinquishing the free exercise of His divine attributes such as His omniscience. The all-knowing, divine Son, temporary, suspended His free exercise of His divine attributes so that He could live a genuine human life in submission to the Father, full dependence on the Holy Spirit to accomplish everything we could not necessary for our salvation. This explains then what? Why would Jesus get hungry if this wasn't the case? Jesus did get hungry. 
He got thirsty. He got tired. He took naps. He went to bed. And most importantly, this explains why Jesus was able to be killed. You've heard it said, how can God die? It's a very common objection Muslims take against the Christian faith. Against the Christian faith. It's because they have no category for the incarnation. That God would come and be very God and very man. In His human nature, not in His divine nature, in His human nature, Jesus did not know the exact timing of His return at this point. But there's also a rhetorical emphasis behind this statement by our Lord as well. For it relates, for it it does reiterate with clarity the utter foolishness or stupidity of anyone trying to set a date for His return. The point is not to set a date. It's rather that we are to remain ready when the event arrives. We may not know when Jesus will return. We know what we should be doing until He returns. Verse 33. Be on guard. Keep awake. Watch. Be alert. Why? For you do not know when the time will come. Three times in these verses... In these verses, our Lord affirms the fact that no one knows the time of His coming. It cannot be any clearer. Let me just say to you, if you watch someone preaching, if you see a post on Facebook, if you hear someone say, the Lord is going to return on this date, please remember this verse. Do not give your ear to it. Jesus makes it very clear. No one knows the time. Be ready. Be on guard. He relates it to a man on a journey in verse 34. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves his home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. We, as God's servants, have been put in charge with his work. What work? The work of proclaiming His enduring Word. Proclaiming the Gospel to all nations. Back in verse 10. We are to be people, the people of God who are about the Son's work until He returns. Verse 35. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the Master of the house will come. In the evening? Or at midnight? Or when the rooster crows? Or in the morning? lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. I find it interesting where people even go to this verse and try to decipher which watch of the night these refers to so that maybe it's the one he didn't refer to. The whole point is, you don't know when he's coming. And he says it, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake, the fourth time he said it. The conclusion of this section cannot be any clearer. Whatever you do with end time realities, whatever you do with trying to think through the Olivet Discourse, and it's a very important passage, just think through the end time realities. There's many passages in the Bible, you should go to them, wrestle through them, think through them. But at the end of it, if your study and conclusion does not bring you back to an urgency and a sense of call to mission in the present, you've missed the point of it all. We are to stay alert. We do not know when He is coming. He could come at any time. Suddenly, verse 36 says, 
And you don't know. You don't want him to find you asleep at the wheel. You don't want to be caught unprepared and not ready. So as the people of God. Awaiting the return of the son of God. We should do so. Marked with an urgency for God. And let's be honest this morning. Like being in a Disney World line in the Florida heat. We far too often tend to doze off. The routines of our life. The busyness of our schedules. Often cause our eyes to get heavy and we tend to drift away. We drift away into believing the lie that tomorrow will be just like yesterday. We tend to drift into that dangerous cycle of laying our head on the pillow at night, hitting the alarm in the morning, day in, day out, believing everything will be the same as it always has been. It's just fine. When in fact, Jesus has left us with his work and he says, I'm coming back, stand at the door, be ready. Nothing else. This odd season we are in should serve as a wake-up call for us to regain a sense of gospel urgency. A sense of urgency to live as the people of God. A sense of urgency to prioritize our lives together. A sense of urgency to love one another and care for one another. Most importantly, a sense of urgency to, to spread, to spend our lives for the spread of God's gospel in the world. What would God find us doing? What would Christ find us doing if He returned to church? Sleeping in the summer heat? Or living with a sense of an urgency for the gospel? It's a clear warning to us, a clear call to us as the church to be awake, to be on guard, to stay focused at the task ahead of us, not to be pulled away by doomsday deceivers, not to be lured away believing that everything that happens on the news feed pulls us away, that we get all upset as the people of God. We need to focus and pay attention Nothing that happens on the news feed is not explained under God's sovereign authority and it doesn't tell us something about our moment. So we don't check out, but we stay awake. We stay focused on proclaiming the enduring word of Christ and the gospel to all nations. We continue to be a gospel people and focus on proclaiming Him through our lives together. That's the call. It's clear. It's a call for us as a church. I can't say it with enough force to you if you don't know Christ. It's a clear warning to you this morning. If you're playing mere religion, if you're playing mere external religion with God, apart from true devotion and surrender to the Lord Jesus, He is coming. Tomorrow is promised to no one. Acts chapter 17, verse 30 to 31, Paul proclaims to a group of people who live very much like our culture, very much like our tendency to, to, to drift into the present 
pleasures of our day. He says this, the time of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. If you're watching this, I want you to know the time of ignorance is over. Christ has come. The center, the purpose, the meaning of history has arrived in Him. This world, this fallen and broken world that we made such by our sin and rebellion that has separated us from God, God has sent the solution to us by His grace in His Son who came, who was born of a man, who lived and walked and breathed and lived in this life in a way that we should have done but we could not do. He never sinned. But then He bore in His body the sins of all who would trust in Him by laying His life down and dying the death that we deserved. And then He rose again, as this text says, giving assurance that God has appointed a day When He will return, He will judge everyone based upon Jesus, the one who rose from the grave. And as we began, our call to worship, which was to put on Christ. It's a call for you this morning. Are you wearing Christ? Are you wrapped in His righteousness? Have you seen your sin before a holy God and your need for forgiveness and salvation? Have you cried out to Him for it? Have you been wrapped and clothed in Christ? Have you put Him on? Because that is your only hope when that day arrives. If you don't know Christ this morning, it's not complicated. It's an act of the heart, an act of the will. You lay your will down by repenting. You confess to God your need for forgiveness due to your sin and you make Him, you ask Him to be Lord of your life. And you live for Him. You follow Him, as the Bible says. You can do that today. If you want to know more about that, you can follow up with us online. Email us. We can walk through this more, we can open up His enduring Word for you even today and help you put on Christ and to be found in Him. Church, let's not be asleep in the summer heat. Let's live for Christ with an urgency for the mission and the gospel before us as the people of God. Because in light of Christ's second coming, our calling is to stay awake and to live with a sense of urgency as the people of God. As our Worship team comes back up. I'm going to pray. I want to give us some time before I pray for us to reflect upon a few questions I gave you there, which was, what are you waiting on? In the sense of, what are you placing your hope in? There's only one worthy. What's your foundation? What's your identity being built upon? Is it a firm foundation or is it something that will crumble and fall? If it's not Christ, 
It will crumble. It will fall. Father in heaven, Lord, even as we sung earlier and even as I preach your word and we confess that you are worthy, at the same time we're confessing we are not worthy. And we're not, Lord. We're sinners. Bound at this moment by this body of flesh. But as Christians, we're sinners who have been saved by grace who now have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And Lord, we help us now as we've, you've awakened us through the power of the gospel, help us to remain, stay awake, to be urgent, to be on mission, not to gratify the desires of the flesh, not to seek after the things of this world, place our hope, our faith, to really give our lives for you each day. Lord, we are to be patient. That's what it means to be the people of God. We're not in a hurry. We need to be patient. Time marches to your timetable. But patience does not mean passivity. We're to be urgent in terms of our own holiness and godliness, but urgent in terms of our witness in the world. So give us that as a church. Help us to see your final day, your, the great coming of the Lord as not just a, a moment out in history that we consider and reflect upon, but a moment out in the, the history, out, of, out, of, out that what awaits us, that stands at the door, but a moment that informs the moment we're in right now, that motivates us to live for you. Lord, for anyone who does not know you, Lord, I pray that they would not be found asleep at the wheel when you return. At that moment, time is up. But I pray today that they would reflect upon the riches of who you are in the gospel. If they don't know you, they would turn their heart to you even today. That they might be ready, prepared for that day. That they would put on Christ. Jesus, we thank you for your word, even passages that are difficult, like the last two weeks. Lord, even in these difficult passages, especially in these difficult passages, we say to you again, it is your word, your enduring word, and we submit to it and we trust you by it. In Jesus' name, amen.